1: Man, 10 a.m. is awake. I like that. That's so good. I cannot even tell you what just a ridiculous honor it is to get to stand with you guys. I was telling my wife when I was getting off the plane, I was like walking through the terminal. She uh, sadly was not able to come this time. And I was like, why do I get so happy when I land here? And her response to, because it's over. I received that, I received that. I was like, why do we love Utah so much? And we do know why we love Utah. This room, the people in this room is why we love Utah so much. We are so, so grateful for your guys' pastors. Pastor Matt and Pastor Loren have become in the last couple of years. I remember we sat down with them. Uh, I, I, was, I was speaking at one of the marriage getaways a few years ago and I sat down and it's like, oh, it's exciting, like these incredible leaders. And we had never gotten to meet them before. And once we found each other, I don't think we talked to anybody else. Cause I just remember, I remember like walking into the parking lot and it's like we had our own little party. We were like leaving together. And to, to get to wake up this morning actually and go downstairs in the Tuggles home, they were so kind enough to, to, guys to host me and uh, it's a special moment. It's like, you know, you know, when you have like a, a person in your life that you admire, that they walk in authority, they walk in power, and you're like, Lord, I want that. And I want to, I want to emulate that. I want to grow towards that. And, but oftentimes people like that in our life, we don't get to, we don't get to see into their private life, right? We, we don't get to see their prayer room. We don't get to see what their lifestyle is like. And this morning, getting to go downstairs as I was preparing and to just see the Tuggles prayer wall and like, oh, that's why they they live it to hear them waking up at O oh, dark 30 to to intercede for your guys's hearts to intercede for their families, like man that's it's a it's a rare and special thing to find somebody who's like man they are the real deal um, and I feel like I feel like there's such a direct extension right of all of our lead pastors pastor uh, Jurgen and pastor Leanne who are just like the most absurdly authentic, kind, and amazing people. You know, I just don't, like you meet them and you're like, are, are, do people like you exist? They're so, they're, they're so amazing when they're ministering to you and they're like they're that conduit of God, but then you meet them in close proximity. And you're like, man, I don't know what to do with you. They're so, we're just, I'm grateful for them. Thank you guys so much. Uh, uh, you guys can find your seats. A couple weeks ago when, uh, I don't know, it was 11, 11 or 12 days ago, I wasn't expecting to be in Salt Lake City today. <laughs> and they gave me a call and he said, man, we just feel, we just feel like God is, is telling us to extend Freedom Week, yeah. is to extend this thing. And, that. and immediately, immediately, before they even told me all of what they were thinking, I was like, I was able to connect because uh, this place, this, this piece and the Christian journey is something that's so close to my heart because it was, a, it was a place where I spent a lot of my life defeated. And then once I understood what was going wrong, once I understood the, the lie that the enemy was using to keep me in this cycle of defeat, then it's like I, everybody has to understand this. Because last week, y'all had Freedom Week, right? Yep, yep. And what happens at, at Freedom Week? Because people would like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually give... An answer to this question because it's a really bad question. But if somebody were to ask me, if I was to only go to church one week out of the year, if I was only to attend, which one would be if you're only gonna go once, you should go to Freedom Week. Why? Because breaking the bondage through spiritual deliverance, calling out the spirits that have taken us prisoner. And breaking their hold over life is the foundation of all growth. There's no spiritual maturation. there's no growing into the person God has called you to be. if we don't start with breaking the chains. If we don't spark with spiritual freedom, the challenge is that moment can be so powerful that we can mistake the, the breaking of the chain. We can mistake in that for leaving the chains behind. And then what we do is. We wake up a week later or a month later, and because we're still struggling with something or our thoughts still go to that place or our behaviors still go to that place or our emotions still go to that place, and we think, oh, what went wrong? Maybe I didn't really mean it, or maybe God didn't really show up the way that I thought he was gonna show up. And I felt like as I was preparing for today, I was on a, a prayer walk, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit is like, My, the people need to understand what happens after freedom not after freedom in like after freedom's over, after the chains break, how do we let them go? Because if we don't let them go, we drag, them, we drag broken, open, unlocked chains with us wow. into cycles of pain and repetition wow. forever. And, and one of the most kind of damaging things is, when I, if, has anybody ever heard of Acquire the Fire? Yes. It's a youth event from the 90s. 209, it's so weird. There's, a, there's some juju here. There's something special. Um, when I was like 13, 14, 15, my youth group went to acquire the fire. And I remember the first time, it was the most insane radical experience I'd ever had. I'd never seen people that on fire for God. i had never heard a preacher explain the gospel and God's loved me in such a clear way. You guys know that feeling when it's like, you've been walking around in a fog for so long, you don't even, the fog has become normal to you. You don't even realize you can't see clearly, and then somebody just, somebody just explains the gospel to you, and it's clear, and it's like all of a sudden you realize how foggy it's been. Well, I had this incredible encounter with God at Acquire the Fire at 13 years old, and then the problem is if, if you go to an encounter with God, but you don't have a community of God who's growing, I don't have somebody who can say, I've taken the next three steps, let me show you how, then what happens? You slip back into the sin, you slip back into the prison. And so we, I did that once and then I, I think I went back at 14, I remember being like, okay, this time I really meant it. And then I remember at 15, it was the first time I remember feeling like, I actually don't wanna go. Cause I don't want, I don't wanna wake up two weeks after Acquire the Fire and go to school with that same cloud of shame, with that same cloud of defeat, like, oh, I slipped back into it again, or I'm experiencing or thinking or feeling or doing these things again. And I remember hearing one of the uh, adults at the church, they were talking about a choir of the fire before we left, I hear one of the adults at the church, oh, that's where you guys go do that mountaintop experience, right? And it was so dismissive. And I think now in hindsight, in hindsight, I'm like, that's because you're not on fire. That's you, you saw it that way. That was your, there was your junk. That was not our junk. But they were naming something that I experienced. It's like encounter without transformation. It leaves us in that cycle that, that uh, Proverbs describes as hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope can't be excited and then disappointed, excited and then disappointed, excited and then disappointed. Without, it's, now hope becomes dangerous. I don't want to hope again. It becomes too painful. We start to protect ourselves from hope. And I remember at 15, I didn't want to go back to Acquire the Fire because I don't want to go through that cycle again. And I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling of, man, I thought... God, God, I really felt like God told me that I dealt with this, or I really felt like God told me this broke off my life. And for us to say, no, 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 we don't want to doubt the broken chains because when God sets somebody free, they are free. The problem is we've spent our whole life walking with chains. So I learned to walk with chains. There's a, there's a buddy of mine in high school, a good friend of mine named Jason, um, who grew up he was born with a benign tumor in his elbow and he had had it all his life so I met him probably around 14 15 something like that and in high school he became one of my best friends And I remember at 16 years old something something to do with like puberty development the tumor in his arm started to grow and the doctors were saying it might not be safe anymore we need to remove it and so the next step was they were going to do an MRI and I remember before the MRI the men of my church I had never seen them do this before Man, sometimes when you, like I talk to people who've been at at Awaken Church for like 14 years, and I'm like, you don't know. You don't know what it's like out there. (laughs) I went to church my whole life without a culture of people expecting to walk in power, expecting that God was gonna show up, expecting, of course God's gonna move. And this is the only time in my entire, like, adolescent life where I remember the men of the church gathering around Jason, and just calling out onto the power of God and asking God to heal this tumor. And then they went in for the MRI, and a couple weeks later, I'm sitting in Jason's kitchen with his mom, and his mom, Barbara, is telling me the story about how the doctor walked in, and he's like, I cannot explain this. It's not there. And it was one of those... It was one of those faith building moments, like, okay, this might be real. There's like something real going on here. What I did not appreciate until years later when I was a therapist was Jason actually still needed surgery. Jason had carried that tumor his entire life. His body had adapted to that tumor being there since he was an infant. So um, connective tissue and and like scar tissue and muscle and bone had grown around the tumor. You know what we call that? We call that traumatic adaption. We adapt to the wound that we're carrying in our life, and even though God miraculously, in the physical, removed a physical tumor. It was no longer there. Jason still needed physical therapy. He still needed to go in for a couple of surgeries to regain full mobility of his arm. Why? Because his arm grew around the wound. And when we go down to the altar, one of the most dangerous things that can happen is that we can go down in a moment of clarity. The Holy Spirit can speak to us. He calls us forth. And then together with, like, one of the prayer team, we, in the authority of God, we, we break. God breaks the power that that chain has on our life. Amen? Are you with me? Yeah. The chain is broken. And then because there's still scar tissue— and I still don't have full mobility in my arm, I still fall into that struggle again, or I feel those things, or I think those things, because the habitual adaption is still there. We think, man, I really, thought it, I really thought God did it that time. And then we start to get into that hope deferral place. There's a place in Galatians where he says, Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. One of my, one of my old managers, you say anytime you read the word therefore, make sure you find out what it's there for. And it's always, it's always connecting two ideas. He's saying, because of this, this. And what Paul is saying, be free. Why? Because I've set you free. There's a there's a a decision for freedom that has to be made, even though the legal Statute, the legal reality, the spiritual reality of freedom is already ours. It is your portion. It is your inheritance. It belongs to you. You're free right now if you're walking in faith in Jesus Christ. That work is done. The problem isn't the spiritual freedom, the problem is the spiritual formation. Have I uh, readapted, right? Have I grown into the form of my spiritual freedom? Are you tracking? Are you still with me? (laughs) I know I get a little cerebral. I know. I love it when you let me know that what I'm saying makes sense. So if we say it this way, if Freedom Week breaks the chains, all the weeks that follow are the weeks that we learn to let the chains go. You with me? And if you even keep, if you keep reading in that same verse in Galatians, it says, and do not be entangled again, which means we can be. Which means that that's the drift, that's the way the bowling ball is going to roll. There's a, there's a there's a steer. You have to be. You're going to get entangled again unless you intentionally don't. And we're moving from a place of spiritual freedom to a space of spiritual formation. Why does this happen? It's it's helpful for me at least. It's helpful to understand why we keep drifting back. Why? What does it mean that that um, our bodies and our emotional our emotional world and our spiritual world and our psychological world grew around the wound. What does that mean? Because trauma is intergenerational, always. That doesn't mean my unique trauma is intergenerational. My unique trauma is my story, right? It's what I've been through. But the fact that, you know, I grew up in a home with really spicy conflict, right? When mom, when mom and dad were mad, neighbors knew about it. It was, it was alive. And there was always a place the, the, the things the neighbors could hear, that was my mom. My dad, didn't, my dad didn't know. My dad was the guy that kind of shut down. And so I have these memories of my mom getting really, really overwhelmed, yelling. In fact, when Sarah and I were dating, we dated in high school, and she, say, she got into the habit of pulling up in front of my house and she'd roll down the window. <laughs> and she'd give it a second. And if she could hear my mom, she'd like And she'd like <laughs> It's not good. It's not good for him. It's not good for me. It's just, we're gonna. I'm like, mom. I'm pretty sure you're Italian. There, I don't think it, I, you've never told me that. But there's like, see, 209. That I watch. I watch my dad get flooded with the pain and the distress of being unable to repair with his wife, right? I watched my dad be so overwhelmed, he goes to a place of hopelessness, how do I know? Because he's gone into what we call a dorsal state. When men shut down, and I know it's not only men, but that's a, it's more common in men, when you see a man shut down, it's not, ladies, wives here, it's not because they don't care. Dorsal state activation, meaning shutdown, is the highest level of distress. Most men at a calmer state would much rather be fighting but their nervous system has learned, if I fight, I'll make it worse. And so they shut down because the the thing that's, the connection with their spouse is so dear to them that any, any action feels like it will make it worse. And so I watched my dad shut down because he doesn't know what to do. And so what, what does my brain do? My nervous system, literally trauma, is passed down nervous system to nervous system. Not very rarely is it narrative to narrative. Like you tell me oh, you can't trust men, right? Or you can't trust women. That happens. The most pervasive, the most common form of transmission is nervous system. We are designed by God to attune, that's why they call it the sympathetic nervous system, attune to the nervous system's most important to us, mom, dad, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, sister. And so my nervous system by default attunes to my parents. And when I watch dad enter, I can feel that he's in distress. My brain says, there's something about conflict that is really dangerous. And so what happens when I get into conflict with my wife 20 years later, my nervous system remembers. My brain doesn't remember. I might not have any memories of what happened back there. My nervous system remembers. I don't remember why Sarah having a critical tone, or I, I I can't explain to you why Sarah having a critical tone sends me into a place of anger and anxiety and shame. All I know is the slightest tone from my wife, and I shut down, and she loses me and it gets passed down through these cycles. And first and foremost, it's in the nervous, it's something we experience. Which is why, wow. side note, which is why I think spiritual formation is a, ner- is a function of the nervous system. Spiritual formation is us experiencing the freedom that is already spiritually ours. Does that make sense? Um, I'm like way off, I'm way off track. Okay, bring it back. So what happens is we grow up with these adaptions. We grow up, we we adapt to the tumor, we adapt to the wound and we start to think of them as just us, right? One of dysfunction's absolute favorite places to hide is that's just the way I am, right? That's just my personality. I remember when I was early in my marriage, um, I really thought of myself as this like, stoic, non-emotional, you guys, I cry every day. <laughs> I really thought of myself as this really stoic person. In fact, there'd be times early in our marriage where like, we'd be in a fight and I'm like, I wish so badly I could cry because it would like give me some collateral to like work with. Like, If I started crying, you'd have to stop <laughs> defending yourself and you'd have to listen to me because when she cries, it's just like you win. Yeah. It's like I can't, it's so frustrating. And I remember we, first couple of years, it gets harder and harder. We have this total crisis and, and we get into therapy and God starts to really radically transform our life. And then maybe a year or two later, man, we're on this healing journey and very much in the same vein probably, I'm thinking, man, God has so radically changed my life through making me aware of the addiction and therapy and all this like freedom that's broken off my life. It's like, I'm pretty much, I've pretty much got it worked out now. I'm pretty much, whole now. And then I was in graduate school and I remember there'd be these waves of just anxiety and and like depression would hit me. And I would get so like just antagonistic towards Sarah. I'm like, something is off. You know what I need? More loneliness. So I would, I scheduled this. This is like, this is like the idea that I was just like, this is the greatest thing ever. I scheduled a three-day solitude retreat at a monastery near my house. And I'm sure God is like, awesome. Go, go, go be more alone. That's what you need. Brian. <laughs> but he works even in our, in our misconception. And so I arrive, I remember checking in, there's this really ugly young, young woman behind the desk. And she said, um, just, just so you know, our spiritual director who offers spiritual direction, um, which is kind of like, it's kind of like the Catholic version of therapy, right? It's, it's very like non-directive. They're not telling you, they're not correcting you. They're not giving you biblical um, answers. They're just holding the tension of that spiritual journey that you're on in the process. And I would never done it, so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'd be down for that. Yeah, Ruth is here and she can see you tomorrow. Like, oh, sure. And so I walk in and uh, I remember I'm a therapist, almost. I'm still in graduate school, but I'm offering therapy to clients. I, it's a, it's a, there's a tenuous thing that you just have to go through. Um, <laughs> And so I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I've got my stuff pretty much figured out. And one of the things that's bothered me my whole life is, like I said, I just like I just, I don't know why I just don't cry. And I walked into Ruth's office, and Ruth is um, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be hyperbolic. I think she was probably like like 90 years old. She was very senior and just so sweet and so fragile. And I remember sitting down. I'm like, if I sneeze, am I going to hurt you? Like, And I had already been there a day, so I had been fasting for a day. Everybody, how you know, like fasting is powerful. Fasting works on the emotional, the psychological, and the physical at the same time. So deprivation to our rhythms of reassurance, like I like to snack on food, right? Not just am I in a calorie deficit, but my body doesn't have any of those nice regulatory, like I'm I'm regulating myself with carbohydrates, which is my personal favorite. And so I'm in this really like raw place and I walked into Ruth and I remember she asked me this simple question like, what, what do you think you'd like to process with our time? And I like started to open my mouth and I just started weeping. It's like there was a, there was a gate that just broke and I couldn't form sentences for like five minutes and she's just so sweet. Like it, t- if you were looking at Ruth, you wouldn't know that anything had happened. She's just like, Like she's just chilling, she was just totally good. It was exactly, it was just such a God moment. And I slobber for a while and then I get to a place and I start to process like, you know? And it was something that the Lord was showing me literally as I was speaking to Ruth because we are wounded in relationship and guys, God only heals us in relationship. We are not meant to heal on our own. And I remember sitting there with Ruth and I was just realizing, man, like God has done so much in our life over the last three years, um, radical transformation from addiction. He restored my marriage. We were like talking about divorce. He restored my marriage so much. I'm in graduate school, I'm doing all these things. And you know, I think there was, there was this feeling, I, I, I took this huge boulder, this big secret that I had lived with all my life, this big shameful boulder, and I got it out into the light. And I said, oh, okay, good. Now I'm known oh, good, now I'm not living in isolation anymore. The secret is out. And as I was sitting with Ruth, I was like, I think secrecy is like my native language because I'm not carrying a secret right now. As I sat in that room with Ruth, there was nothing I was ashamed of. There was no sin that I was hiding. I was just realizing, oh, I just don't tell people what I'm going through. I'm just like, what do you need? How can I help you? How can I make you feel good? I just always, I get my needs indirectly met through meeting your needs, and I realized, oh, I, th- I think I'm still living in the thing I adapted. Now that the big ugly boulder's gone, but this is oh, I'm still being formed into the freedom that's already true. Now I have to learn how to like when I get hurt by Sarah to like tell her about it and be like, you're, I'm not. <laughs> I just. I just want to let you know when X, I was kind of feeling, I was kind of feeling hurt when that happened. Man, can any men relate to me? There's something about that that just feels like, why? Why would I do that? <laughs> Here's the because. Because when I say, man, when that happened, when you said that, when you did that, that hurt. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, sweet. thank you for telling me. Something like, click. And I'm no longer alone with that feeling. And you know what happens to the feeling? When it's low level, when it's every day, the feeling evaporates because the problem wasn't the offense. The problem was the isolation. And so I had to relearn how to be in relationship. I'm way off track. So why do we get pulled off track? Because there is a spiritual reality of bondage that we grow up in, there's a demonic oppression that is in our life. And that demonic oppression is an external oppression. It is alien to you. Like that tumor, it was not an inherent part of Jason's body. The tricky part is that we can come to a saving relationship with Christ. We can even access the power of the Holy Spirit and not realize that that voice of the demonic I don't need the demonic anymore. It's like, it's like I hear little uh, or, uh, people talking about when they were little kids. It's like, man, the first couple of times that I felt really shameful about something, I needed somebody else to tell me that it was shameful. But after that happened a couple of times, I could do it all by myself that we take the voice of the demonic and then it becomes a voice that we know how to carry with us. Why would we do that? We do that because it's protective. That if I cut myself off at the past, if I cut myself off before hope, hope can't disappoint me. And so what we have to learn to do is just like James describes in this passage, is we have to learn to take back those core parts of our experience from the demonic and reclaim them for Christ. Now, let, me, let me show you an example. In James 1.14, it says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, gives birth, gives forth, brings forth death. And what's interesting to me about that is that the first half of that process, Paul doesn't describe, James doesn't describe as sin, is that as we are living in some kind of deprivation, that just like Eve, if you go back to chapter three, Eve's living in paradise. And there's this moment where the serpent enters this idea into her head that God isn't trustworthy. Oh, he didn't say no about the fruit because it's gonna hurt you. That's not why he said no. He said no because it's actually awesome and he doesn't want you to have it. Have you guys ever had one of those moments where you, you felt safe with somebody and then you found out something that shook that? and it's like you found out they said something about you to somebody else, or they did something that you would have never thought, and it's like the whole world shifts a little bit. It shakes you so hard that just a second ago, the world was a benevolent place. Just a second ago, the world was safe, and all of a sudden, the whole world feels unsafe. That's what happens to Eve. The world is a safe place, and the serpent inserts this idea that God isn't trustworthy, and all of a sudden, the garden isn't so vibrant anymore. The next sentence is, and then Eve saw that the the fruit of the tree was desirable. So the fruit of the tree didn't look desirable until the garden lost its luster, until God was no longer trustworthy. And so what happens in our desires is that when we are walking in a deprivation, meaning our view of God is not right. Our view of God is, yeah, I know he loves me. I know he's good but man, if I really live that Christian life, how much joy is there in that? Or how much excitement in there? Will it really fulfill me? Can I do it? Will I be all my own? Will I actually fail? That my view of God isn't whole yet, which leaves me super vulnerable to my, to my nervous system, to my desire basically saying, where can I find an exit to this uncertainty? Where can I find an exit to this cloudy, foggy world that I'm living in? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the first thing that sin and, and trauma cycles Grasp onto usually, not exclusively, but usually, is it grabs onto the feeling of longing the feeling of desire and and when it captures our longing, because longing, desire, desire is this thing that activates in our nervous system and desire wants movement. Desire thrusts us, doesn't it? Desire and contentment are actually distinct things. Desire is the longing for something that is not yet realized. It's a God-given trait. Desire is a good thing. It is dangerous if desire in an unmet need, if, if my needs are met, if I'm operating in emotional isolation because I just learned not to talk about my feelings, and I'm operating in this emotional isolation, it's like I'm, I'm like calorically deprived, I'm really hungry, but I don't know it. Desire is gonna look for ways to get false nutrients, and then it subverts the will. In addiction theory, what we literally say, you can observe it, is in addiction, the, the limbic brain, the base of the brain, overrides the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of you that makes good decisions. If you talk to a man who like, if you talk to not a man, if you talk to anybody who just did something that they really regret, and be like, what were you thinking? Most men, yeah. yes, <laughs> me. Um, the first thing that's so frustrating is because you'll say, what were you thinking? And then they'll say, I wasn't. And they're not lying. And here's one of the, the craziest things that I had to realize in my own recovery and in helping other men is that when the limbic brain hijacks the prefrontal cortex, it does that because let's say I'm starving to death and there's a piece of chocolate cake in front of me, but that chocolate cake belongs to somebody else. If I don't eat the chocolate cake, my body thinks I'm going to die. If I do eat the chocolate cake, my prefrontal cortex knows that I'm going to offend that person, or maybe I'll go to jail. At some point, survival overrides, and it says, who cares what the consequences are? You need the chocolate cake. We do the same thing in our emotional deprivation. Is that At some point, you'll ask, you'll ask that man struggling with addiction to say, um, or, or a wife. This is one of the most common things I'll hear. The wife will say, like, weren't you thinking about me? And almost universally, they'll say, I really wasn't, which can feel so wounding. Like, why weren't you thinking about it? No, 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 you've misunderstood what's happening. Is the brain has to compartmentalize the consequences or the drug doesn't work. If I'm thinking about what will happen, the consequences, the ripple effect, the pain that you're gonna feel, the disconnection I'm gonna feel from you, then this won't gratify me. And so the brain is overriding that. I'm getting a little off track again, but, The thing I was, the thing I wanted to hit was that most of the time, the place where the will gets subverted, where we get hijacked, is in longing. Why? It's not about desire. Desire is a good thing. It gets hijacked because we're living in an ecosystem, because our view of God is unwhole. He's not wholly trustworthy. I might, I might have like, think in my brain, yes, God is good. I know he's good. I know he loves me. But you check in with your emotional system because your emotional theology is a much better reflection of what you really believe about God than your cognitive psycho- theology. And you check in, man, when you think about this area of your life where you're struggling, does it really feel like God's there for you? No, I feel really alone. Okay, that's the place that we need to heal, the place you feel really alone. And so there's three components to spiritual formation. Three components that that lead a person through spiritual formation. And When you look at these components, what you realize is that in fact, everybody has spiritual formation. Everybody has been spiritually formed. The man who's struggling with pornography has been spiritually formed in such a way that those three components, vision, intention, and means have left him in a world where his best resource is pornography. That is his spiritual formation. So what does that mean? For vision is my vision of who God is. Is God trustworthy? Is God good? Does he have a plan for me? Am I loved when I look into the eyes of God and I see my reflection? My vision of God, I heard one of One man say, the shape of God is the shape of the whole universe. So my vision of God actually dictates how I see the world that I live in. Just like when you think about that moment that you felt blindsided and betrayed by somebody, I I never thought they would say something about me behind my back like that. What shifted, it's not just that my view of that person shifted, no, the world I was in shifted. The whole world got a little bit unsafe. When our view of God is off, it leaves us vulnerable to repeating the cycle. Once once we understand that the main thing God wants to heal in our spiritual formation is not our willpower or our discipline in a certain area, that's a byproduct. The main thing he wants to heal is his relationship with you. He wants you to look at him and see safety, to see love, to be... Oh man, you connect with it, huh? To, To look into his eyes and to realize, I am completely loved right now to feel the kind of safety that that makes you take risks not because uh, you're so confident that you'll be successful because it doesn't matter if you're successful it's like the little kid is like i don't care if i fail i don't care if i suck at the sport i don't care if i fall down dad's got me i can try again i can try something new I'll, i'll i'll keep moving that kind of safety that's the number one thing god wants to heal in our life because he knows out of that You're gonna trust that word he gives you when you're walking through the grocery store and he gives you a word about the other person. He knows that you are gonna be a conduit of his love to the whole world when he gets your view of him right. Are you with me? Intention, intention is an outflow of vision. When Eve was under the safety of a good God, her intention was to live in the fullness that God had given her. She wasn't struggling with a desire to eat the fruit. She didn't want to. In fact, when she thought about the fruit, she thought about death. That was the association in her brain. It wasn't until God was untrustworthy that all of a sudden that longing got activated. And so when we think about intention, it's us realizing, okay, as God's healing my view of him, one of the greatest barometers we have, one of the greatest kind of compasses we have is, man, where's where's my longing? One of the things that you see a lot in uh, men who are recovering from some kind of addiction. And it's probably fair to say, because I'm talking a lot about addiction, that we all know addiction, all of us. Addiction is repeating a behavior or a thought, an experience, repeating it, even though there's negative or destructive results. So if you, if you can like say nowhere else but even only in our own thought life. Do you have some dysfunctional thoughts that you're addicted to? That for some reason, my brain keeps going back to that way of viewing the problem, that way of thinking about the person. We all know what addiction is. And oftentimes when you are going through that process with somebody, one of the greatest indicators that you're really, oh man, they're they're going to a new depth in their recovery, is they start to get a really uh, finely tuned awareness of where their longing is pointed. And they can feel, ooh, I can feel that I want to act out. I I want to view something. I can tell that that there's that tightness in my chest that's hoping I'll be home alone. And their ability to just name that activation, name that feeling, is they're breaking identification with it and they're realizing, okay, now that I'm aware of that, because I can't change what I don't know how to acknowledge or notice, now that I'm aware of it, I can say, I need to focus on the goodness of God, I need to reset my longing so that what I long for is what my family feels like when I'm walking in integrity, what my love with, loving relationship with my wife feels like when I am walking in integrity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Intention is where we set our our directions, where we set our focus. It's what, what am I determined internally to do. Means refers to the infrastructure we build out of that intention. So if I am really motivated in the beginning of my recovery because man, I I almost, my wife was talking about divorce there for a couple weeks and so I'm really motivated to make changes right now. And I start to like delete apps on my phone and I install software and I do all these things. Means is is, is like the infrastructure, the lifestyle I'm living and it's critical, but it's really important for us to understand that means is only ever going to be a sustainable as my vision of God is whole. Because eventually I could set up all of those apps and we see it all the time. I could set up all those protective barriers with my, my addiction or my recovery or whatever it is. But if I don't change my view of God, all of those protective barriers are just gonna leave me more and more and more and more emotionally alone until my Limbic brain is gonna override those barriers and it's gonna say, screw the consequences. I need to breathe, right? I need to feel gratification. I need to feel pleasure. I need to feel alive for a second. And we're gonna go right back to the cycle until we're able to say, nope, the real problem is that I'm feeling alone because I actually can't see the closeness of God. I can't perceive the love and the protection and the, and the plan that he has for my life. And so those, those three pieces, vision, who God is, which translates into a vision for our entire life, where we get joy, what gives our life meaning, intention, what we can feel on an emotional level and what we decide in our mind to actually do. What is the way that we are going to live? You know, our intentions get corrected when we come to the altar often, but until I know that the only way to heal my vision of God is experiencing Him, His love and His power every single day, that I know that those intentions, those great, good intentions are only gonna last so long. Um, there's, a, there's a thing when it comes to means that I always like to add is oftentimes means can be very diagnostic. It can reveal to us what we believe about God or how serious we are about change. Because like if you, if you ask somebody um, kind of early in their recovery and you say, hey, it sounds like um, you know, deleting the app wasn't enough. It sounds like these other precautions just haven't been enough. Have you considered maybe getting a flip phone, right? Like, have you considered making it even more impossible? And then they'll say something like, "Well, that's just not realistic for me. I can't do that. I don't have that luxury." You know, I'm like, it doesn't sound like you have the luxury of not doing it, because this addiction is still too powerful. When we keep when we keep falling, we don't blame the person going through. We don't blame. Ourself, we say, oh, the thing I'm coming up against is still more powerful than me. And so the way I reclaim agency is I choose to make it harder for me to do it so that I can stabilize and I can experience God's love and I can let my muscles grow. And there's this moment that was very confusing to me. It almost feels like rude where Jesus approaches a guy who's crippled next to a pool. And there's a, there's a, a belief that the pool of Bethesda, if you could get into it, that it would, the pool would heal you. And Jesus came up, he saw this man who was disabled, this, um, he was crippled and he, Jesus comes up to him and he knows exactly what's going on in his life. And Jesus leans over and he's asks him, do you want to be healed? And at face value, that's a little offensive. That's like, <laughs> duh, obviously I want to be healed. And he says, yes, I want to be healed, but I can't get through the crowd. I can't get to the water in time. And then Jesus tells him, well, why why don't you stand up? And Jesus kind of lends him the faith to say, you know what, if I was determined to, I would have already been in the water. I needed to own what I wanted. I needed, do I really wanna be healed yet? Because if I really believe that that pool down there has magical properties, I would have already been in there. If I really believed that that maybe getting a flip phone would transform my marriage and my life would be on fire with joy and connection. I would have thrown my iPhone in the trash a long time ago. I'm not telling anybody to get rid of your iPhone. I'm just saying, as an example. But maybe, yes. Um, because what's so important for us is real freedom, the kind of freedom that comes from formation is not a function of willpower. It's not being strong enough. That's what they call in uh, AA, they call it the dry drunk who has maybe abstained for years, sometimes decades. They've, they haven't had a drink, but they still have the emotional longing for it. They've, they've stabilized the behavior, but they haven't addressed their vision of God. Their brain still believes to feel whole, I need that thing. And so what we wanna do is in a moment like this, we wanna say, okay, God, what is the next step? Because the deliverance and the freedom that you started last week, Lord, I know, not maybe, I know you have a plan for today and there's a step to take tomorrow. And there's a verse, I think I actually skipped over it. Um, Yeah, it's a continuation of Peter uh, where he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control. And he goes, because if you possess these qualities in ever increasing measure, meaning you're not supposed to step into godliness black and white overnight. The, The practice is getting stronger. It's an increasing. Increasing is where the power is. I walk in power when I'm increasing, not when I go from zero to 10. When I go from zero to one, I'm walking in power. When you're walking in power, it shifts everything. When you feel progress, you stay focused, you stay connected, you can feel the reality and the power of God in your life. So I just want to give you guys a moment that, um, and an encouragement that if there is a boulder in your life, if there is something that you're harboring, there's a fear, there's a, there's a place that feels too stuck, then start there. Don't walk out of this room without letting somebody else hold that with you and letting somebody else speak the voice of God into your life and say, Lord, in your name, by your power, by your grace, by your sacrifice, we curse this bondage and we loose these chains. They are broken and we receive your forgiveness. Don't walk out of this room with unbroken chains. And if you've already did that maybe last week, as you start to start to realize, man, do I have anxiety about walking this out? Is there a place in my view of you, Lord, that you're still trying to grow and heal and hold? Because I don't wanna, I don't wanna walk out of that. I don't wanna walk out without naming that either. Remember, we are wounded in relationship and we only heal in relationship. So the practice of bringing that down to the altar and saying, man, Lord, show me this, would you pray for me, is we take that one step and we sow today's freedom. Are you with me? Yes. Lord, we thank you so much that you have a plan for our lives, that, that today is not an accident, that, that deliverance and freedom does not stop when the chains break, that you are excited about every single step of the journey. Lord, we pray for the courage and the freedom and the safety to receive from you. What is the gift? What is the step that you have for us today, Lord? Lord, For those people in this room who you are illuminating for them, that there's a view of you as good and powerful and loving, but there's still a place where they their heart can't feel that you're gonna meet all their needs. There's still a fear in them that there's a place of isolation, there's a place not good enough, there's a place of rejection. Lord, I pray that you give them the courage to step forward, name that and leave it here. Lord, if if there's anybody carrying something that you're revealing to them that you know is bondage, Lord, I thank you that you have given us everything we need